that in the debate around shipping decarbonisation, certain postulates are always put forward. The first one, we need the IMO, or in any case, a regulator, to deliver a shipping-specific policy framework to make it happen. For example, a carbon price in the IMO. Secondly, it's postulated that collaboration is necessary and that only old habits are keeping us from it. And thirdly, alternative fuels should be the priority over short-term energy efficiency measures. But as we all know, the IMO takes time to adopt uh, wide-ranging policy measures. And we already hear murmurs that in the current geopolitical and economic climate, it can be difficult to achieve a groundbreaking uh, new climate strategy next year in, uh, in the IMO. And then you have the challenge that in commoditized markets, it is hard to make the case for strategic long-term collaboration on complex issues such as decarbonization. And when we talk about alternative fuels, what can we do today to make their market entry easier and more affordable down the road? Because future fuels will be much more expensive. And let's not forget about the global warming perspective, as it is much more important to reduce CO2 emissions today rather than pushing those emission reductions into the future. Now, with this in mind, how can charters and ship owners and operators work together to make early moves less risky for those involved? Do emissions reductions have any value before there is a carbon price in place? Today, uh, we will explore this together with our esteemed panelists. I'm pleased to introduce them. Uh, first of all, joining us from Singapore is Suyin Anand, Head of Shipping in South 32. She's an advocate for collaboration in the maritime industry, and we're so pleased to have her with us today. Our next panelist is Claire Wright, commercial, uh, General Manager, Commercial and Strategy in Shell Shipping and Maritime. Welcome, pleased to have you with us. Here in Oslo, we are joined by Haris Sographa. within the tanker and dry bulk segment. Welcome to, uh, to everyone and also welcome to our audience. Uh, you have a chat box uh, in, uh, on your screen and we encourage everyone who is listening in to use the occasion to ask questions uh, throughout the, the webinar and we will try to answer as many of them as possible. Also feel free to let us know where you're joining us uh, from as we'd love to have have your uh, hear your say as well in this discussion. To get started, Harris, I uh, I want to turn to you first. Uh, when we prepared for this uh, webinar, you said something that stuck with me. You said, if you want to get going with decarbonization, forget about the IMO and forget about your technical department. Now, aren't these the two pillars that uh, decarbonization success will hinge on? Help me understand. Right. Yes, thank you, Ingrid. So, um, there is a confusion at the center of this debate. Decarbonization is two different things. And we tend to confuse those things and then we cannot make progress. We sort of rabbits in the headlights, we don't know what to do. Those two things are, on one hand, you have the quest for the new energy source. And that's a monumental challenge. Whether it's green ammonia or green methanol, green hydrogen, all of those things. And we feel powerless. And of course, there's consensus. We need a market-based measure. We need a carbon tax. 
We need so many, many, many things. And by the way, we also need a trillion dollars for the infrastructure. But that's not all there is. There is the other side of decarbonization, which has nothing to do with a new energy source and everything to do with the carbon footprint of the industry. And to reduce that and reduce that drastically and to reduce that drastically this decade, you need to do what you can do with today's, with the, with the, with the cards you have been dealt with today. And we have more than we think. So we do have a regulatory framework. It is wrong to say that we need more regulations, more regulations, more regulations for the purposes of abatement, for the purposes of reducing emissions, we have enough. We have the alphabet soup, the EOI, EXI, EDI, CII. It's not a gourmet meal. It's not a Michelin star restaurant. It's an alphabet soup, but it's good enough. On top of that, we of course have scope three emissions. So there is a... a the, 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 a framework, it's not regulatory because it's voluntary, but we have the framework that incentivizes those who operate and those who charter and those who own ships to reduce their emissions. So the combination of the existing regulatory framework plus scope three, plus a little bit of help with the, from the EU by way of the ETS that gives you a little bit of a carbon price, not perfect. None of this is perfect but it's good enough, that can help drive decisions today around efficiency, reducing the carbon footprint, and whether that is retrofits or operational measures or a contractual architecture that will make that work, whether it's time charters or voyage charters, we can talk about that later. So, What about the technical department? Well, there will always be a technical solution, whether it's like retrofits, for example. So it will be the technical people who will tell us whether you will need new coatings or a new propeller or a new bulbous bow or uh, some fancy voyage planning solution and all of those things. But of course, that's not enough. It's not about the technology. To implement the technology, you would need to fit that into your business models, into your contractual architecture and make it happen. But all of that can be implemented today without waiting for some perfect regulation, which will take another 10 years. I think that's inspiring because innovation is definitely more than just uh, coming up with new new technology uh, all the time. But uh, uh, Engelbrecht, uh, do you agree with what Harris is saying? Uh, do we have the toolbox, uh, both on the policy side and uh, in terms of the incentives to do what we can with, uh, with the operational measures, etc.? I agree with the main message of Harris is basically that we have to start acting now and there's a huge untapped potential in improving the efficiency of the operations, improving the cooperation between charters and ship owners, and also a big potential when it comes to improving the energy efficiency of ships. So in totality, you can actually come a long way on the decarbonization before there is a new type of fuel easy available before IMO has got to act together to make uh, a new uh, new regulations. But I do believe there is definitely a need to get the, a carbon tax system in, 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 into action within the next uh, this de de decade, because you need incentives to make the bigger investments that is needed to get to net zero and where you 
want to add? Claire, I would like to invite you to share your thoughts on uh, on this uh, this provocation. The IMO, the technical department, you know, is it is it unnecessary? I think the reality is we need all of those. Um, I recognise if the IMO is perhaps slower than some in industry would like, but we are in the fortunate position to be in having a global regulator, which is the principal industry partners that we count on. But it's also up to those of us in industry to show the pathways forward that the IMO can then regulate against. So I think it is also incumbent on us to take our own voluntary measures. And from a contractual perspective, the Cargo Charter is an example of that, where charters have got together to measure and report their emissions to the way of voluntarily regulation. Um, but then I agree with Harris, we need to do the research into the long-term fuels, but we also need to reduce um, our carbon footprint today and the technical department have a role to play in both of those. And I think, you know, what we have also seen from uh, our, our own uh, analysis in, in uh, Zero Lab here in, in Cloudness, we see that there's so much untapped potential. You could, in many supply chains, reduce emissions with uh, more than 20% just by improving the operational uh, uh, efficiency. Uh, but let's explore, you know, the topic of collaboration a bit more. And I want to bring in Suyin uh, Anand from South 32. Uh, I, of course, like to hear your thoughts as well on on, uh, on the provocation from from Harris. But but first, as a major charter, you you do hold the key to early stage decarbonisation efforts in uh, in shipping by creating demand. But you're also part of a fiercely competitive market. How does a company like South32 try to put a value on carbon ahead of carbon pricing? Um, thanks, Ingrid. Um, I think that's a really good question. Um, I like to think that, uh, you know, firstly, um, I think you say we hold the key because we control the demand. I like to think that we're just part of a, a bigger and larger value chain and we're one of the stakeholders. I don't think we necessarily hold the key because we don't own the asset. Uh, however, I think for a company like South 32, and to your question as to how do we price carbon, uh, it's not easy. And I think because it's such a complex issue, um, and uh, because um, there are so many different stakeholders involved, it hasn't been an easy or straightforward process uh, for us. However, as a company, we strongly believe that uh, decarbonization is the right thing to do. Um, and we have uh, hired, I believe, the right people to work with us through this journey. We also then engage a lot in conversations with our uh, stakeholders to understand what is their view on the journey which they want to go through and see how we can then fit into their plans. So I think at this stage, there's just a lot of conversation. And we also have to take a... Um, uh, take a take a take a punt and take a you know take a guess on where the market is heading, but uh, heading, but always maintaining agility uh, through the process. Hmm. And uh, you know, uh, Harris, Engler, what kind of approaches do you see that uh, all the companies are taking? Uh, how do how does carbon feature in in conversations in the market? Everybody's focused on, on the CII right now uh, in terms of the uh, owner-charter relationship or a wider uh, relationship to bring in uh, the cargo interests. I think CII um, 
takes up all the oxygen in the room. Uh, uh, we don't have time and space for other more interesting, perhaps, discussions, even though tools exist. Exists. So, for example, the Baltic Exchange has published an EEOI benchmark for the main routes. So it is perfectly possible to create charter parties that incentivize through some carbon adjustment factor, for example, an equivalent of a bunker adjustment factor that we've had in previous years. And you can benchmark that on the basis of the Baltic Exchange EEOI standards. These things exist. They can be deployed reasonably easily. It's just that everyone is focused right now on the big challenge, which is CII and the 1st of January. I think it will take a little bit of time for that to, for the dust to settle, people to understand, to accept that CII is just, is just a start. It's not the end of the conversation. Uh, and then you will see, I think the first thing we will be seeing will be carbon adjustment factors in, in charter parties. So a way to incentivize efficiency voyage per voyage which isn't the CII, which isn't captured by CII, and you need a, an EEOI metric. Hmm. And, and we'll come back, uh, we'll come back to that uh, a little bit uh, later in, in the discussion as well, how, how such contractual innovation uh, can also be a way to, to uh, spur on uh, decarbonisation. Uh, but Claire, you lead uh, Shell's shipping decarbonisation programme, and you have previously talked about how the industry the shipping industry needs to piggyback on developments in other sectors because it's not possible for shipping to fund the entire transition itself. More than a trillion uh, dollars needed in investments up until 2050. That's a, a huge sum. But that points to a strategy of following others, not taking the lead and not setting the, the pace uh, yourself in the transition. Can, can you expand a little bit on you know, why you think this approach can be suitable for, for shipping and the benefits it might have. Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, I'll address the issue of leading or following. Um, shipping has always used as a fuel cargo that it has carried for other industrial sectors. And I think in terms of, I see that one trillion number, I haven't read the report, but it, it's almost an overwhelming number that might stop us from actually making progress on the journey. So to my mind, we need to park that number and think about how do we minimise cost so if we think about what will other industrial sectors use in terms of their fuels, we need to think about that in shipping because we can, as we have previously, piggyback, and I do use that term, on those fuels, but also we need to develop the technology to be able to carry those cargoes. So if we think about liquid hydrogen, there's one liquid hydrogen carrier on the water right now, which is a small test vessel that we're operating to understand how do we handle hydrogen in a marine environment. We need a lot more of those kind of trials, and it is through that that we will then, perhaps, the infrastructure will develop that we could then use as shipping. And in reality, there are two routes to shipping decarbonisation in terms of zero carbon fuels. All fuels will have a hydrogen feedstock. The parts of the world that, are, um, that benefit from the conditions uh, to produce that hydrogen are generally relatively far from other industrial hubs. We will need to ship it, it's just a question of what form. And then in terms of the delivered fuel to the ship, there are two routes. There's synthetic fuels, that's where your hydrogen, LNG, diesel come, or there's hydrogen or ammonia. So understanding what other sectors will be using, and we will therefore be carrying, perhaps gives us a way to accelerate the transition, but also um, not follow, because we 
still need to do the work to carry those cargoes uh, as a cargo and use it as a fuel, but it means we can piggyback on the infrastructure and actually accelerate our decarbonisation rather than left behind. And that, that points definitely maybe more to even a partnership strategy than a, than a follower uh, strategy. How do you feel that uh, carbon uh, features as a as a topic for discussion in the, in the market these days? Um, we see, I, I recognise what Harris says around the CII, and I think that is preoccupying attention because it's actually a new, it's a new relationship between owners and charters, rather than a regulation being based just on the design of the vessel. Now we're getting into, well, actually, we need to focus on the efficiency of how those ships are used, uh, which is a new thing for us as an industry to have to do. In the Sea Cargo Charter, obviously, that's a big focus of it because we're measured on the EOI, so the, the efficiency of how we use the ships. But going forward, um, we also see the role of the customer in there. So we obviously, we tend to focus on container customers. We're, we're all consumers of container customers that demand driving greater efficiency in the container market, but we're also seeing it in some of our markets uh, where there's a desire for carbon neutral LNG cargoes, and therefore some of those more industrial consumers who we have traditionally thought might lag behind are actually looking at carbon and are, are seeing that as something that they wish to address as well. And it's bringing all of those components of the value chain that helps us address carbon in the absence of a carbon framework or carbon pricing that we need to use. Mm. And I think, you know, what you see happening in the consumer market will also eventually make its way into the more industrial uh, market as well, especially with the focus on carbon footprint and life cycle analysis of uh, products. Uh, soon. do you want to comment on that? If this is some, is this a pressure that you also experience? Thanks for that, Ingrid. Uh, before I answer the question, I just want to apologize for the uh, to the audience. It is a shipping conference week in Singapore, so I'm sitting in the middle of a hotel lobby in between conferences uh, taking this webinar. So I do apologize for the uh, background noise if you're hearing that. I'm not I'm not at a party having fun. Don't worry about that. Um, so I think, uh, you know, just two comments I want to make. Following on from uh, Claire's point about uh, learning from other industries, I think um, learning uh, in relation to technology is one thing. But I also think we need to start being a little bit more daring when it comes to hiring people and actually starting to attract uh, talent from other industries who may have contributed or been through a similar decarbonization process in other industries and bringing that talent and knowledge into the shipping industry. I think for a very long time, shipping has always liked to hire from within shipping, uh, the subject matter expertise that we look for from within the maritime industry. But I think that if we are to problem solve decarbonization, we need to rely and we need to really rely on diversity of thought and diversity of talent. Uh, so that's just one point I wanted to make in relation to uh, following and learning from other industries. On whether or not we are facing uh, challenges from customers, I think the answer that I have is it depends. I think that uh, a lot of customers and a lot of industrials understand that uh, there is a need to decarbonize and indeed are coming under a lot of pressure from regulations to decarbonize. But I think where um, the conversation gets a little bit uh, muddy or difficult is actually how do we go about this? I think there's a lack of understanding as to what is it that we can do now uh, in relation to decarbonize. So there's a lot of waiting and seeing um, and just wanting to, to see how others react to it before we proceed. I also think it is geography specific. 
there are certain uh, companies in certain uh, geographies that are more developed and sophisticated in their thinking when it comes to decarbonization and therefore have uh, you know deeper conversations with us over how we're going to help decarbonize the value chain. But in certain jurisdictions and geographies, it's really more of a cost conversation and decarbonization may not be on the forefront of the mind. So I think what we really need to focus on in order to move forward is how do we level the playing field so that everyone recognizes that it's not only about the lowest cost supplier, but it's about doing the right thing and how we go about doing the right thing now. And also just uh, just for, for me to comment on that, I think it's also a, a question of, of various industries as well, uh, where the awareness around ESG and the confidence in the organizations, in my, it, uh, it actually varies uh, quite uh, quite hugely. Uh, and I think companies and we're in sectors that have a track record with working with ESG from a different perspective and decarbonization in the, in the past are perhaps better suited. But I, I, I think what you mentioned about what can we do day to day, that uh, brings me to, to Engelbrecht. Uh, can you talk us through some of the dilemmas uh, that you face in your day-to-day operations uh, that hinders uh, or at least makes decarbonization more and more difficult? Uh, to what extent does CO2 actually weigh in on your daily operational decisions? Thank you. And I think just make it more general for ship owners generally. I mean, it's, you know, uh, the job description of the chartering department of a ship owner is to maximize earnings. And of course, when there are no price on carbon, carbon emission, of course, it doesn't come into equation in most ship owners. Uh, and that means that, that you have this dilemma between earnings and emission. Uh, and typically, you have three different dilemmas. One is, of course, that ship owners have an incentive to speed up when the freight market is high and fuel prices are low. Secondly, they may have an incentive to, to ballast more if the, the, the cargo available in the closest uh, port it requires waiting time or requires a lot of cleaning. And thirdly, it may be that without the price of carbon, you may not take the full cargo because to fill up the ship, your ship, it means you have to go to more ports where you need to have more waiting time. So for us in case of C, I think we have the dilemmas, but we have less dilemmas than, than other ship owners because we have a business model. We have, we have built ships that are more flexible, having ability to take more cargoes and are built to have this efficient cleaning and switching between the cargoes. Uh, so, so in our main trades, it's more like a win-win. What is good for earnings is also good for environment. But we have this dilemma, and, and for us, it's important that every time we ballast, it comes up to me, and it really have to, it can hurt every time we, they make the exception from our rules, because this is something that we don't want to, to, to do, but it may still be that we, from time to time, have to do it, because we're also here to earn money for our shareholders. Balancing as a CEO decision, that's a takeaway uh, from, from this, uh, for sure. Uh, Harris, from, from your vantage point, do you see any contractual barriers to decarbonization? Something that, uh, that should be possible to fix, if there's anything. Um, yes, and then of course, I'm, I'm, I'm focused on the, the second type of discussion, like I separated at the start. So not new energy supplies, we park that. And we're looking at the abatement, reduction of, of carbon footprint. So on that, we need to be a little bit more granular because we talk about collaboration all the time. But to make that realistic, you need to go deeper. You need to drill down. Now, 
it is perfectly possible to organize a long-term contract, a long-term charter party, a COA, and introduce decarbonization or carbon abatement um, solutions, whether it's about the orders of the ship or routing or speed and performance warranties or carbon adjustment factors or financing retrofits. You can do the long But a large part of bulk shipping is spot, short-term time charter, time charter trips, or voyage charters. Now, voyage charters have nothing to do with this collaboration concept that we keep talking about. It doesn't sit in well with, with that at all. Uh, it is a very transactional type of contract. Uh, the charterer wants the ship to go from A to B, and pay, they will pay a fixed freight. They don't care about anything else. They don't care about emissions. They don't care about fuel consumption. They don't care about CII. They don't care about anything. Now, to if we want to decarbonize in the sense of reducing the carbon footprint of the industry, as opposed to the segment that is long-term time charters, we need to find a way to make our voyage charters Greta-friendly. And, and we haven't managed that. We're not discussing that enough, and very, very few companies are, are, are doing it right now. Yeah, Ingrid, if I may just uh, respond to that. Um, I think great point that you make, Harris, and uh, I would just challenge that a little bit, and maybe this falls into your last point that it depends on the company. So uh, for us, we are majority voyage charters, but we do care about the emissions because uh, emissions under a voyage charter, if fixed by us, uh, count towards our scope three emissions. And also, like I said, we believe it's the right thing to do. So whilst I agree that as voyage charters, it's very difficult for us to engage with owners on collaboration unless we enter into a longer term COA with them, I think by getting the data and the emissions data per voyage and gaining the insights that this data give to us, we can actually also come to the table to discuss how can we actually perhaps operate voyages differently if the cause of the higher emissions on a voyage is something that is within the charterer's control. I'm so, glad to hear that because it is possible. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're trying. It's just that people don't talk about it enough and, and certainly not trying. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, sorry. I think that, you know, again, you're right, but I think it goes back to the fact that um, the dry bulk industry is so fragmented. And perhaps we'll get to this in a bit, but what is the future of the dry bulk industry? Is it going to bifurcate into different tiered levels where you have you know, divided into the people that have to comply and the people that have to comply in the owning and chartering side, um, contracting with each other? And it goes on to the lower tiers where then you end up with, you know, the owners and the charters that perhaps are not really thinking about this. Uh, but I do think that consolidation is much needed in the market. We may be seeing that now if you see the movement in the S&P markets uh, with fleets being sold off. But I do think that more consolidation might help this discussion move forward between the owners and the voyage charters. Can I just add, add on top of that in terms of the voyage charters from the, the oil side? We didn't have transparency of the performance of voyage charters before the sea cargo charter. And that has given us the mechanism to start collecting that data and then understanding what decisions are we making, as you said, that affect the performance of those of those voyages. 
without that data, we didn't have that. And so I see data as one of these themes that enables us to, to have that better relationship between the charters that enables the and I think just, this access to data is something completely new, you know, and a lot of companies also have to learn how to how to use the data. Uh, and, you know, one of the ways to use the data, Engebret, I'm sure you want to talk a bit about how you've been experimenting as well with, with the carbon adjustment factor and, and the role of good data in that. Yeah, and of course, that is, uh, that is, you know, more on a contract basis, but of course, could be a contract, could be a lot of things. It could be some sort of framework agreement. If, if they have a certain ship owner that she uses a lot in, uh, in 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 a certain trade, there could be a framework agreement that every time you are we are using you, we have this mechanism. But again, we are we are a bit back to what Harris mentioned, which is this what we call the carbon adjustment factor uh, type of uh, uh, solution. And and the idea is that you introduce a carbon pricing in a world where there are no price on carbon, in lack of any carbon uh, tax. Uh, and and, that is, and the idea is that this should incentivize owners to optimize their operation, not only on earnings, but also from a mission point of view, and to incentivize installation of, of, uh, of uh, energy efficiency measures and, and introduce new type of ships. Uh, and, and the essence of it is that, uh, that you link the, the freight earnings to the mission performance relative to baseline. Meaning that if you have, if the ship owner overperforms, he gets a higher freight. If he underperforms, he gets a lower freight. And then, and this mechanism has, has to be fair. It has to be balanced in a way that the ship owner actually has an exposure. That meaning that he has a risk that he will lose money unless he has his super optimal operation. And, and by they are putting money into this um, mechanism, um, you actually get the, the incentives to to do the right things. Without, without the carbon pricing element, it's difficult for the normal ship owners to, to do it, even though you could be uh, you know, idealistic. I mean, it doesn't work that way in shipping today. Uh, and at the same time, there has to be a mechanism whereby the, the charters that are willing to do this put up money today where carbon doesn't have a price, that they get a pay, payback later on. They get the share of the increased energy efficiency uh, and hence, the, the future saving in carbon taxes should be more than what they pay through the cuff mechanism. So actually, if you do this right, you not only reduce the emission of your ocean freight, but you can also be profitable in the longer run for the for the charters. So I think it's something that could be worked on, not only on long-term charters, but also on looser type of, of chartering arrangements. So um, yeah, we are we believe in this, but it takes a bit of time. I think that is quite idealistic, although you said it's uh, it's not. I think that's a very idealistic approach because it's a, a new way to, to try to approach uh, the, the issue of, uh, of collaboration. Uh, Claire, I, I just want to pick up on uh, what you said about the Sea Cargo Charter and how it provides you with more visibility on on, uh, on performance. Uh, but, you know, what's the next step? And uh, how, how do we use that to create some meaningful incentives to actually achieve emission reductions, uh, that we move from disclosure to reductions? So, the, the, yes, you're right, the Sea Cargo Charter is a reporting, a measurement and reporting mechanism, essentially, but what it does for the first time is, rather than think about the IMO's 2050 objective as something that's been in 2049, we are measured annually against a reduction trajectory that leads to that, and at some point in the future, we will probably ship, uh, as a second trajectory, which is aligned with the 1.5 degree 
circuitry. So by doing that, we can see for each of our vessel types and in fact each of our individual vessels how well aligned they are with that trajectory. And it gives us the insight, in fact, to individual voyage performance, particularly on the voyage charters um, that we didn't have before, on how the choices we're making around choices around ballast, choices around um, we don't send those up to the CEO, those decisions on, on ballast. I think he's a bit busy for that. Um, but choices on laden um, quantities, all of those kinds of things, it's giving us visibility that we didn't have before. And through that, we can then make choices around how we deploy those ships. That's what we're working on at the moment. The first report is this year. So this is the first year that we've had insights into that data. The next step, obviously, that we're working on now is how what do we do to reduce that? Um, it is a challenge still when this is a voluntary mechanism. And obviously, we are influenced by what's happening in the markets. And obviously, in the oil markets, we've seen quite a lot of disruption this year that may impact the performance. But the combination of the CQRO Charter and the CII coming in, and, and Engelbrecht may have been, um, I think you did use the word idealistic um, in, in his vision, but the CII is going to encourage charterers and donors to work more closely together in how those vessels are deployed and maximising the efficiency of that deployment. Um, we would prefer the CII was aligned with the EOI, um, Cargo charter rather than two different mechanisms. Uh, we do think the laden component is important uh, because for us, maximizing the laden of a vessel maximizes its utilization and therefore those decisions are, are for something rather than the vessel balancing. Mm. And I think that was also a point that was covered uh, rather extensively also in our webinar yesterday. So I encourage everyone who wants to uh, learn more about that discussion to, to download and have a look. But it, it you know, we have the SSC, we have uh, the CII, but we also have the scope three emissions, which we, uh, which we discussed briefly uh, at the beginning here, which is the indirect emissions uh, that the company generates in its uh, supply chain. And it's also double counted among the companies uh, in order to facilitate the collaboration and then highlight the fact that the emissions are really the responsibility of only one entity. And that interest in the scope three emissions category where shipping emissions belong, it's really accelerating, much driven by reporting and disclosure, for example, in the in the sea cargo charter. But uh, Harris, you, you mentioned this uh, in your introduction that this is, you know, part of the, the soft policy framework, uh, so to speak, to, to incentivize uh, emission uh, reductions or at least emissions insights. Do you think it can drive change? Or is it too far removed from business? How can we, you know, turn it into something that uh, drives uh, decisions and not just reporting? Traditionally, uh, the shipping industry saw itself as a desert island in the middle of the ocean. Nobody really understands it. Nobody cares. And that's fine. Let's leave it like that. Uh, but we have all seen, whether you look at the pandemic or the ever given or decarbonization, shipping is now visible. You know, we cannot go back to the old days where we are that little island in the middle of the ocean. Now, visibility means that we acknowledge, we understand that shipping is a link in the world supply chain. We've always said and we've always taken pride in saying that shipping is 90% of everything. Everything you wear, every energy you consume, all raw materials are covered by sea. By sea. Now, because precisely because shipping is 90% of everything, 
Shipping is also everybody's scope three emissions, not just the raw materials people like, like in, but also consumer goods companies. Uh, I was on a panel the other day with uh, a gentleman from Nestle. Nestle report to the scope three emissions. And I think, I hope I haven't got it wrong. I think the number was 1 million tons of CO2 per year uh, out of Nestle's scope three are maritime. That's not a big number. This is not a big proportion of Nestle's scope one, two, and three, but it's a big number. So how does that work? Nestle, the user of raw materials, let's say grains or palm oil, will apply pressure to the people who bring those or sell those raw materials to them, let's say Cargill, and they will say to the supplier, I don't, know, I don't care what you do, but whatever you do, you have to reduce your carbon footprint because this is spoiling my scope three emissions. The supplier then, Cargill, will turn to the ship owner, Engebret, and say to Engebret, I don't care what you do, but you have to do something because my customer is reporting your ship's emissions as his scope three. Now, this has nothing to do with the IMO, nothing to do with the moonshot of zero carbon fuels but everything to do with the, the footprint of the voyage today in the way that it affects scope three. Now, how many companies report scope three? Thousands. Uh, if you follow the discussions in, in the US, there is a, a, a law that is trying to get its way through a bill that's trying to get through its way through Congress that uh, US companies will have to report scope three. A large part of the American politics doesn't accept it and it may not pass. But that's the direction of travel. And when you get thousands and thousands and thousands of companies reporting scope three, bearing in mind that shipping is everybody's scope three, that's how you would catalyze change in shipping. And much faster than uh, uh, the perfect regulatory IMO framework that may take another 10 years. And I, I think that links up really well with uh, the point about diversity that Suyin raised uh, earlier in the discussion, because, you know, if this is right, then you also need to hire and work with a completely different new type of stakeholders within the company. For example, sustain sustainability managers. Uh, you have to maybe talk to your traders in a, in a different uh, manner as, uh, as well. And, and I think we need to maybe think about how to open the world of chartering to a different set of stakeholders with a different type of competence as well. If the scope three emissions are to have uh, that kind of impact that you suggested might have, uh, Harris. Uh, so Ian, in, in South 32, you've been able to raise interest in, in scope, uh, scope three emissions. And I think it's really inspiring how you work with shipping emissions as well. I think it's no, no secret that you also work with uh, us on, on monitoring and on reporting your shipping emissions. But I'm curious how you manage to build an understanding for, for this as a need uh, inside, the, inside the business. Um, I think it really starts with uh, thought leadership and deciding that it is the right thing to do. Um, once you decide it's the right thing... I think we just uh, lost you there, Suyun. So if you can uh, repeat that. That's what happens when and we have a direct line. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me? We lost you for a second. So if you can uh, stop sorry. again. 
Yeah. Um, so I said, um, I, it starts with thought leadership and recognizing and acknowledging that it's the right thing to do. Uh, once you understand and start with that position, and then, then you overlay it with the business uh, aspect of it. Uh, how does it fit into the longer-term strategic uh, view of the company and into the company's strategic business plans? And once you understand that why, it's quite easy then to sell the how and the what uh, to within the organization. So that was our journey. Uh, the freight team decided that this was something that was important to us. Um, it was important for us uh, to start tackling the issue with our owners in order for us to become an, or rather retain our position as a customer of choice for our ship owners because we recognized that this was a, a going to become a big challenge for ship owners. Um, so we decided to be proactive, uh, learn together with our owners and grow together with our owners on this uh, longer term journey. So I think, you know, in summary, it's understand the why and then sell the why within the organization before you embark on the how and what. I think that's, uh, that's really inspiring. And I would hope to see other companies also pursuing that, that route. Uh, Claire, what do you think about the, the prospect of bringing in uh, another type of competence or, or backgrounds in, into the whole process to decarbonize shipping? Yes, I think it's something that we have talked about. My background is an unconventional one for, uh, for shipping in that my academic background is politics and I've never been to sea. But when we look at the future, where the decisions are taking, it's much more ambiguous. The, the roots of the organisation, the decisions we're taking, it's not going to be do this or do that. Being comfortable in that ambiguity and taking what is the best decision at the time um, is something we're going to have to be much more comfortable with in shipping. So I completely echo what Ian said in terms of bringing different backgrounds or looking at the skills we need to do a particular thing that we're going to have to do in the future rather than perhaps looking at the experience we've brought in in the past because we've always done it that way or we've always had this kind of person in this kind of job. It challenges us to think about, well, what actually do we need as that skill set in the future? But also on the other way around, how do we make that attractive to those people who we want to attract into the industry. And I think we're starting to get far better at um, talking about or describing the importance of shipping as a global economy, but also the importance of shipping in that transition towards a lower, lower and zero, zero carbon for the entire world, not just for our own industry. Mm. So, so in the words of uh, Ingebrecht, to make sure that we are future bound. Uh, Again, I want to encourage our audience to ask uh, questions if you have any. We have a couple of minutes uh, left where you can uh, ask our panelists whatever you uh, you wonder. You can also ask in an anonymous uh, manner if you, if you prefer that. Uh, but I've prepared some backup questions uh, if our audience is is, uh, is silent. And we did, uh, you know, we did. I wanted to talk a little bit more about, you know, early uh, days carbonization, whether it is. Is it only possible in, in long-term uh, long-term contracts? And do you have to forego the spot market if you want to be an uh, an early mover? And I think that's a, it's an interesting question to to delve a little bit more uh, into. So if I may challenge uh, Engbret and Harris and Claire on, on this, I think I think there are actually solutions today where 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 you can basically see what are in, in the spot position in a in a in a in a region uh, in an area, you, you can you can rank ships based on their fuel efficiency. So there are you know solutions that are there which actually will develop. So it's not, uh, it, I mean, which will give the proper information to to judge. 
then of course I think for for companies like Shell and so 32 they may be put into some sort of a calculatory carbon tax into the the chartering departments to make sure that carbon has uh, uh, you know comes into the picture when they do the chartering decisions. And I think there are some companies which do it. I don't know, it may be that you actually already are doing it, Clan and Sweden, but it, it, it is, I mean, in some way, either through the cuff mechanism, which is more contract, but also maybe in a spot that you can have a mechanism, way to work that actually it, you pick up that point. Yeah, I think traditionally we've always, we have always ranked ships in the way you're describing, but we've done it traditionally based on safety. Hmm. And I think what we will see increasingly in the future, particularly with the CRM, particularly with the decarbonisation targets that A, we have as an organisation, but also through the cargo charter making it visible, is we will see that that efficiency piece come far more into our decisions in terms of what choices we make on shorter term commitments. But you're right, Ingrid, it is a lot easier on long term commitments. Plus, when we're making choices on long term commitments, which new builds, it's much easier for us to incorporate energy fuel and new technologies like um, air lubrication, shaft generation to get the most efficient building we can. But then it's the, it, it really, to build on Angerbrook, it's the decisions that lots of us in the market will make that will enable owners to change those ships or improve the ships um, that are deployed on the spot market. And that, that will take time. And here we have uh, a question from one of the audience. Let's uh, let's see. How do you suggest the spot freight dynamics to change uh, to incorporate emissions, specifically when charters are not aware of their exact emission details of the vessel they are taking on spot? I think maybe I can I can take this one first. Yep. I think uh, for uh, parties engaged in a mainly spot charter trade. I think the first step would be for you to start incorporating the sea cargo charter clause in your charter parties so that you get access to the actual admissions data per voyage. Now, then the second question is to, which I understand to be, you know, how do you start pricing it? Um, I do think that that is a little bit of a difficult uh question, uh, but both Engelbrecht and Claire have touched upon potential ways uh, in which you can go about this, whether it's through a CAF mechanism or whether it's through a supplier tiering with efficiency taking on uh, you know, a, a higher weightage uh, as compared to previous models. Um, so that would be my view as a charterer. It's not easy, but you have to start somewhere and I think the data is where you start from. Hmm. And I think that, yeah, especially the, the call to have uh, good data is, uh, is something that we're fully behind. And I think if we are uh, hoping that, uh, you know, initiative from, from stakeholders outside of the policy realm, if we are to like keep up progress, even if the, the climate strategy from the IMO were to be delayed uh, next year, I think we just need to rely on more and more data to guide us in our decisions. I uh, want us to do a small uh, wrap-up, and I have a question to, uh, to challenge all the, all the speakers. And uh, you'll go first, uh, Suyin, since you have to leave us uh, a little bit, uh, little bit earlier. But if you could implement one change to your current business practice to accelerate shipping decarbonisation, what would that be? Am I only limited to one change? Um, there's so, oh, yeah, so many, you know. <laughs> so many thoughts on this. Um, I think um, I would really start with people. 
Because ultimately, yes, a business is based on people, systems and processes, but it's your people that drive your systems and processes. So the one change I think I want to see implemented in the shipping industry now is that when we start hiring people in, even those, even charterers, it's we start hiring people with a mindset uh, of, uh, with a mindset that gives them the ability to deal with uncertainty, but also a very future forward-looking mindset. Because I think we do need these types of people in industry to help us prepare ourselves uh, for the future. So I will start with our people. I think that's a great call for uh, diversity uh, scene that I know a lot of uh, people in the industry will uh, will echo. Claire, if you could implement a business practice change to accelerate decarbonisation, what would that be? Again, it's hard to limit to one, and I will um, I echo what Sian said, but I will go for something very pragmatic at the spectrum. I think really the shortest term gain we can make is in operational efficiency. So if I was to change something in business practice, it would be to somehow enable us to overcome those centuries of um, case law that create Someone did say to me last week at the GMF, what could we do if we had data trust? So it would be those two things. How do we overcome that relationship? It would be a relationship to get us into a space where we can maximise the operational efficiency of the vessel. But also, how do we make sure the data, and in getting that data, doesn't put a lot of extra work on the crew, but we get accurate data for all of us. And I think that's a very important point, not to place too much extra burden on, on the crew, which is, crew is obviously playing a, a key role in, uh, in decarbonisation as well. Harris, what would be your chosen change? It's similar to what Claire is saying, really. Um, we can deliver, uh, uh, I don't know, 20, 25, 30, maybe more percentage points of uh, emissions reductions today through a combination of retrofits, um, uh, 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 making sure that our contracts are not driving against um, decarbonization and against voyage efficiency. Uh, uh, the bankers would need to figure out a way to finance retrofits in a way that is consistent with uh, other parties, because otherwise the owners would not finance the capex for the retrofits. Um, but but th those things are, are achievable this decade now, quickly. And it is this decade that, that holds the key to uh, uh, reaching any, any meaningful target uh, uh, in terms of the climate problem. And Yvette, I'll uh, let you close out this round. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I'm in line with Harrison and, and also Claire on it, that, you know, you need to find a system a mechanism in the contracts you have with your, with your charters where you cooperate to reduce emissions. Mm -hmm. And I think it, we talked about the cuff mechanism, which I hope can be a part of all of our contracts. But also it's more it's that you have the, the, the good and, uh, and, and precise reporting of emissions, that you set common targets together with your, with your customers based on, on identified uh, initiatives to cut emissions and to measure it. And I think that is the way to go. I think you need more cooperation in the industry. And that's, you know, I, I, I said more than one thing, 
but again, I think that's the key going forward. And uh, and and I, I sense that we are getting step by step closer to that dream. I uh, I think it's great that we have uh, many more suggestions than uh, than just one. It uh, proves that we have a toolbox of uh, of things to actually employ today uh, to start with uh, emission reductions. Uh, the background for this webinar series that we hosted yesterday and today was the question, do stakeholders still care about shipping emissions in this uh, rather tumultuous world that we are experiencing right now? I think we can safely say that in the industry that we still care a lot about uh, reducing uh, shipping emissions. The, uh, the pressure is, uh, is on. I think we, uh, we will see a lot of uh, interesting discussions ahead of the IMO uh, meetings uh, next year and, and the updated uh, climate strategy. But I'm, I'm very pleased to say that we can conclude this, uh, this small webinar series with saying, yes, stakeholders do care. And yes, there are tools available uh, now to start with, uh, with emission reductions, even though there is uncertainty about how the, the final policy framework will will turn out. So I want to thank all our speakers who have contributed with uh, insights and uh, understanding into how this market is, is unfolding. And I also want to thank our audience for, for showing up yesterday and today. Thank you so much. This uh, video will be available on our website. So uh, please don't hesitate to, to check it out again if you would like to revisit the, the argument. And make sure to sign up for, for newsletters from uh, KCC and Zero Lab to receive invitations to future webinars. Thank you to everyone. Thank you. Thank you.